Hello and a very warm welcome to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Architecture at Kingston School of Art. Today we're chatting to Keith Papper, Director and Head of Science, Research and Technology at BDP in their London headquarters. He's played a leading role in many education sector projects, including schools and research buildings. We'll be talking a little about the work that he does here, but primarily this is a conversation about the way that he and BDP work. So, can we start with the remarks that I found on your website? Firstly, you say that you are, quotes, passionate about raising the aspirations of clients, end users and stakeholders. So, what's a stakeholder and what do you mean? Stakeholder is an interesting word. So, I mean, the thing about stakeholders, for an architect, that's sort of everyone. The problem with everyone, of course, is that that means you've got to deal with everything. So, their priorities. And I think that's one of the things that as an architect you have to learn. You have a client who pays you, that has to be your first priority. You've got a whole range of other people that you're responsible to as a professional. And so that's where the whole range of stakeholders becomes key. But there's priorities in stakeholders, don't you? Yeah. So how do you do that? What, what, well, I think you have to look at the balance of what you're actually doing. You cannot separate these things from context. So there'll be projects that have a much more of an impact on a particular local area, or on a particular group of people in society. Your responsibility to them you might consider goes higher up the pecking order in that sort of situation. If you're working on a, I don't know, let's say, an um, Ministry of Defence piece of, of, of work where the, the building is way away from everybody and no one's ever going to get near it, that range of stakeholders is going to be different. And the responses you're going to get from them are going to be different as well. But in terms of like contractual relationships, because who, who pays the piper, you could yeah. say is the chief stakeholder. Yeah. Yeah. But then the public also are stakeholders in yep. these things, but they don't have any contractual relationship. Well, it's interesting. They have no contractual relationship. Um, and again, depending on the project and depending on the context, you can end up in a situation where they may have more say, either because the nature of the project means it's just very, very public and you're getting protests in some cases. You know, you can have very serious responses. Right, so that classic bubble diagram of stakeholders mm-hmm. actually moves and the bubbles grow oh, and yeah. develop as the project grows. So yeah, completely. Okay. So by project and during the project. Yeah, yeah absolutely. good, good, good. No, because the ideal is that, you know, you set a stakeholder diagram yeah. beginning of the project yeah. and that's what the stakeholder program but, but, is. But some stuff happens. I mean, even in projects I've been involved in in higher education, just the politics of a university can change during the project. Politics of stuff outside just seems to be changing constantly at the moment. And so inevitably, whatever you draw at the beginning will have to shift. Very good. All right. That's a good start, isn't it? Then, on the website, you want to raise aspirations of clients. Obviously, you're not saying that clients have low aspirations, but what, what do you mean? Give us an example. Well, I think, I think the, um, sometimes clients, particularly when they're very focused on the amount of money they've got to spend or the speed at which they might have to do a project, will focus on very particular things that they consider to be the success factors for a, a project. And that's not always quality, for example, or it may be, not be a quality level that perhaps they could be aspiring to achieve. And I think it's, it's incumbent on an architect particularly, all design professionals, but an architect particularly, to continually question that and just to continually push a little bit further each stage or each, each week to try to make the project the best it can be for all those stakeholders. That but in my day, we used to call that challenging the brief. I think, yes, it is that. I think particularly at the outset, because you've got most opportunity to influence it at the early days. Yeah, challenging the brief, absolutely. I think that that goes in both directions, interestingly, because you can make a a project more efficient by challenging a brief. That may release money to do something else. That may improve the quality or allow them to give more back to more public-facing stuff. A consultant has expertise and, hopefully, understanding and maybe a little bit of wisdom. And when set a challenge by a client or anybody, the first response is, well, that's interesting. 
interesting, isn't it? Let's just unpick that a little bit and try and work out, yeah. well, is what you think the right solution? Yeah. Is that actually the right solution, or can we go a little bit further or in a yeah, slightly different yeah. direction? Yeah, yeah. And, and the, presumably that's a challenge which may have financial, you know, you're challenging maybe the budget. Yeah, but sometimes. I mean, I think that... I think when I was younger as an architect, that whole idea is, what do you mean you only want to spend top and tape me on this project? Um, as, as you get a bit older, you realise that the reality is that if you're going to build anything, <laughs> you do have to work with budgets that people have not got more money, then that's all they've got to spend. You've just got to find the most effective way of spending that money. Um, the final thing you say is that you, you personally, but your company, espouses collaborative working. Obviously, it's not a solo profession. You know, we have to work collaboratively. So, are you stating the bleeding obvious, or you have more meaning behind it? I suppose, um, and this is perhaps the the oddity of BDP, which is because I've spent a lot of time working at BDP, and it's always been multi-professional. So, I that collaboration is very very normal. So, that's that's not really what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. The the interesting part of the collaboration is that the sense that as an architect, you are the the author, or the author, uh, of a vision that you will personally deliver is interesting, and it's perhaps the way that many university courses at degree level particularly tend to teach people and therefore lead to an expectation. But the reality is you are never doing that. You are always working with a client. You are always working with a public. You are always working with a whole bunch of people who are not necessarily designers or even involved in the, in the building design professions. And that's the collaboration that's more interesting because... If you think that architects have a monopoly on great ideas, then you're not really paying attention. And so it's much better to consider that actually everybody's got something to offer and add to the project and work collectively properly in order to get the best project at the end. From what you have been saying, the, the collaborative aspect, which is really the theme of this conversation, started at the very beginning with the client. Yep. And the question then is, what's the trick? Getting to meet a client? Getting to develop those relationships, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. Getting, getting to meet a client quite often is hard in itself, frankly, particularly at early stages of projects when you're trying to convince them you're the right people to, uh, to do it. But putting that to one side, setting the direction and understanding everybody's part in that early on seems pretty important to me. And it can get very formulaic if you just set down a bunch of rules and a bunch of agenda items you're going to follow. I think that's going to take you so far, but actually I'm not sure it's going to get a real understanding of how you're going to work together. Uh, you know, because as an architect, you go to all kinds of um, go through all kinds of selection processes, and the project interview is still that moment that I expect a client to select the people they want to work with, regardless of what all the other scores from all the other bits of the process have actually indicated. I do think lots of people get quite upset about this, but I think it's not unreasonable for a client to say, you know, they vote brilliantly, but I cannot imagine working with them for the next four years. To then at that point say, well, no, we're not going to choose you. One of the hardest things to do is always, before you're selected, is trying to demonstrate the way in which you're going to work so that they can have confidence that actually as a relationship it's going to work. After the selection, the most important part is putting together a team of people, by those people you've got control of who are your architect team, their characteristics, the way they think and they work, that matches and meets effectively the way the client body works or the way that the other um, design professionals work. So that you've got a proper match of characters. And that's really hard because, you know, a project comes in, you've got three people available and you need two of them. If one of them or two of them don't fit, you've got a real problem. But actually, at that point, you then start to think, well, do we have to unpick other project teams to make that work? And almost always the right answer is yes, because if you get the wrong people in the project at the outset, it's never going to go right. Very interesting. Before I get carried away with how interesting it is, I'm going to go back to 
Back to the Roots, uh, which is about all about you. Just to find out how you did get to this position, this grand position of being able to pick teams and lord it um, and all the rest of it. So you studied at UCL, you studied at Kingston. So um, educationally, I, I, I applied, I think, to a grand total, it's either nine or 11 higher education institutions. And essentially, Kingston still felt very much like an art school. And it felt very, very good place to be doing the work, and the work was interesting. I'll uh, chip in and say it still has the feel of art school. I had a feeling it would do. And, and, and it makes, it's, it's interesting that it makes such a big difference to the way that you approach problem solving and architecture when you're surrounded by people doing similar but very different things. Uh, and then when it came back, came to do my part three, um, I'd looked at a lot of the courses and so many of them required a written paper at the end and it was so long since I'd done one I kind of really wasn't up for that and then when I looked at the course at Kingston and I know it still runs in a very similar way the fact that it's coursework through it and you write kind of proper thought out papers and then there's a paper at the end that sort of suited so I kind of enjoyed that of course. Fantastic, I was going to interrupt and I thought it was no, coming to a great point of celebration of the Kingston part <laughs> three that I'd leave you to talk about it and BDP, did you come straight to BDP? So I did my part one at BDP, and then when I finished my uh, postgrad at uh, UCL, uh, I was sort of possibly unemployable, which is one output of that particular school for me. Uh, I, went to, I went to see a, a very well-known architect at the time, uh, and went through my portfolio with her at an interview, and uh, at the end of it, she said, sorry, was I supposed to understand anything by any of that? And I thought, that's it, I'm never going to get a job. Uh, and it was in the middle of the recession, so there wasn't much work, there was no work here. So I ended up working with a chap in Clapham called Stephen Buck, who used to work with Dixon Jones. Uh, a lot of very interesting work with um, Diocese of London. Uh, so I got to kind of look around sort of existing churches and 50 churches and Guildford and things like that, which was really interesting. And spent about 18 months with him before BDP called me and said, look, do you want to come and see us again? been here ever since okay very good very good but it, uh, it was interesting in fact I, I, I remember um, it's coming back to me that uh, my case study at my Kingston part three it was essentially trying to undertake a small academic study around the, la the, the lack of trust in the construction industry and it seemed to me that the Latham report and perhaps more especially the Egan report on rethinking construction really sort of was bringing to a head the fact that there was so little trust in the industry, specifically between architects and contractors, and that the antagonism that had built up between two really important elements to getting anything built had got to the point where there were really, really poor working methodologies, really poor working relationships. There was poor quality that was probably coming out of that, and there was really, really poor value for money because of it, which means that ultimately no one was winning, everybody was losing somewhere along that line. The whole conversation was about underachievement as well of the, of the industry. I mean, we can mm, discuss whether that, what that necessarily means. So ultimately, they had this long report, a very influential report, gave rise to modern methods of construction and all kinds of prefabricated conversations which seem still not to have happened. And we can discuss whether collaboration has actually happened mm -hmm. as well. But there was a kind of an agenda of things that you know you could consider in the process of developing a project and, and that idea about front-ending a project mm -hmm. as well kind of doing a lot of the work collaboratively up front so that it would save you time towards the end so if you go through a few of these general points if you can tell us uh, the listener what maybe they meant at the time or more importantly what they mean now and how you deal with them so talks about focus on the customer mm. First of all, <laughs> the word customer creeps into a conversation, like, you know, like students are, uh, are yeah. customers. Obviously, everyone's a customer. How, how do you see that manifesting itself today? I suppose at the time, and it's still true now, 
that if, if, if all the effort is being put into this antagonistic relationship between contractor and architect, then the poor client tends to get slightly forgotten. Um, and a lot of the mechanisms that sit within the contracts that came out of these reports, the NEC contracts particularly, they all seem to be focused on making sure that if nothing else, the client knows what's going on. Because the relationship between architects and contractor, when you had architects as um, contract administrators, it became really close-knit. And, and when it went well, it was brilliant. And when it went badly, it was horrible. And, and quite often, the client only ever found out about it quite a long way down the line when they suddenly realised all their money was going into this bottomless pit and, and none of the building was coming out of it. And I think if once you move away from the adversarial contracts, as they became known, the JCTs, and what, I guess... What are they? What are the NEC? We're not an awful lot of NEC contracts. Okay. Uh, we also get bespoke forms quite often, but most of the bespoke forms tend to be based on NEC. And bespoke, internally bespoke? Uh, not by us, no, usually by the client groups. So a lot of our oh. clients can be um, organised, higher education clients quite often have their own contracts with one of our work. University of Cambridge had their own contract, which sort of was developed at kind of the same time as the NEC, and they took a slightly different slant on it, but only ever used the one contract, so they wouldn't use anything else. Second one, let's move on. Uh, integrated processes. Is Egan again saying we mm-hmm. need more integrated processes, teams mm-hmm. uh, with improved management and supervisory skills? Yeah. Again, so how do you see that? Well, I think this is really interesting, because I think actually of all the things that have happened from the reports, this is probably the one that's had, I would argue, the biggest and the most positive effect because it, it made, or it made, it required everybody to focus more carefully on how and when things had to happen in a project. Sounds ridiculous saying this now, but how and when things had to happen in a project so that ultimately everybody could deliver their part of the bargain. And so you didn't have, you know, this situation where um, management processes or just simple kind of uh, laissez-faire attitude meant that just stuff wasn't happening at the right time and eventually inevitably people were tripping over each other and not achieving the best outcome and certainly being inefficient uh, in, in doing it. So actually that, that I think has been really strong and a lot of the um, uh, design management processes that have come through that, which quite often get it's such a bad press, I just think people are not very sexy, people don't like to engage with them particularly, but they have been uh, really beneficial I think for, for everybody involved in delivering projects. Kind of the more professional clients, it's slightly upskilled them because it's just more transparent actually how and when things probably should happen and the importance of doing them in the right order. Yeah. Well, actually, when he was talking there, I was thinking that embedding management into the everyday activity of all partners in, within the team, I, can, I get that. So you don't, you don't just ascribe the management to a dedicated manager who then becomes a technocrat. But then at the same time, there you are working with NEC contracts where a project manager... Uh, is a title yeah. and a job. So and does that work? The, the, my experience of NEC contracts has been quite varied and, and it's varied in the degree to which the bureaucracy that goes with an NEC contract is implemented. And I think this is, it's one of the challenges I think of the NEC contract. I completely understand why the whole early warning process and all the other things that flow from that as important because it's absolutely about ensuring that the client group ultimately are aware of what's going on in the project. That all makes perfect sense to some extent. But actually at any point you're asked to kind of, on a, on a really large project, if you're asked to kind of pick out anything that might cause a problem later in the line and write it down and go through the process of having responses made to it, it, it becomes really quite a difficult process to manage and therefore actually you do need people who will just do that. that that's the project management element in, in my mind. There's a much bigger argument about whether project management and architect as, a, as, as roles within a project have 
got to the point where they're so divorced that actually architects no longer know how to manage. And I think that was, again, what was happening at the time. Yeah. The, the yeah. Egan report was being written, definitely. So I think that is a challenge. And I think if, if somebody could come up with a way of, of minimising the, the management load and still get to the right kind of outcome through that, that would be a massive improvement on the C contracts. Yeah. yeah. But I think um, that then changes when you're perhaps working on a smaller scale project or a medium scale project. And actually a lot of those bureaucratic processes aren't necessarily appropriate. And I think that if the relationships are set up right and are controlled effectively enough and there's enough control over what's happening so you know when things are starting to go awry, then it's probably more appropriate to be looser in the way those are applied. Yeah, so I think maybe over the 25 years that we're talking about, maybe it has become looser, we've become more acclimatised to it. Because at the time, there was this kind of bureaucratic template, spreadsheet mentality, wasn't there? Completely. Uh, Okay, good. So then we move on to, well, follows on really, quality-driven agenda. Mm -hmm. What the hell does that mean? Well, the quality-driven agenda is an interesting thing, isn't it? So it, it, it starts with the premise, doesn't it, that what was being built was crap, in essence. And therefore, stuff had to be done so that the stuff that being, was being built was not so crap. And that kind of, as a, as a starting point, again, is slightly terrifying, isn't it? If you think about it, was, was it really that bad 25 years ago? The answer is it might have been in, in certain areas, but, but there was certainly a perception. This was also in the context of people looking around other parts of the world and saying, well, look, they can build that over there for half the time. And twice as well, then yes, you'd look at it and say, you've got to focus on that, otherwise it's never going to be good enough. It's a bit like saying, do you improve um, things by just sort of doing the same thing, or do you improve it by looking at a particular area and saying, we could do that better? I don't, I don't think it's any different to that. No, fair enough. I mean, obviously, it was driven by, look, you can make a car window yeah. that winds up and it's completely <laughs> waterproof, and every window in the country leaks. <laughs> and then, but then, obviously, we then solved leaks, and then we had terrible condensation problems. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so let's move on. Replacing competitive tendering with long-term relationships. This is quite an important one. It, it, it's an interesting one, and actually, I don't think I don't think we've seen it develop perhaps as far as maybe anybody thought it might do in the twenty-five years that have followed. We've seen the rise of frameworks, awful lot of frameworks. I know that you know, as, as BDP, we don't see them as a bad thing because we tend to get on them. Yeah, um, yeah. We obviously don't get on all of them, and they are extremely hard work to get on normally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also aware, you know, colleagues of mine and friends who work in practices where they cannot demonstrate many of the things they're asked to demonstrate to get onto a framework, and all of a sudden a whole stretch of workload is now close to them, and that does mm-hmm. seem uh, a little unfair. It's very quickly. When you say it's hard work, you can get onto them. So here we are having a conversation about how to work collaboratively. Oh, yeah. And yet you're going through presumably a fairly hostile bidding process and masses of paperwork and bureaucracy in order to achieve that. Uh, depending on, uh, on on how well put together the procurement process and the framework is. But, yeah, we tend to find... I do remember one. We, I went to, went, we didn't get on this one. I remember going to an interview um, for a framework. And they had asked us for so many different permutations of fee that when the section of the interview that they set aside to talk about fees came up, we, we, we actually had to roll out our fee schedules on a table that filled the whole side of the interview room. It was quite a big room just to kind of put it, the paper on the table. And that asked us to get through all of those to get onto the framework, whereas actually probably none of those would actually be right when the actual project came out. I think also we, we, we felt there was a point when client groups who had very little actual building work to do but had estates teams who had to do something, there was a lot of framework set up at that point which then never really materialised into any work. So I think yeah. the frameworks have, have upsides and downsides just as a, as, a, as a type, let alone as, a, as your ability to get onto them. 
But yeah, well, that said, and this doesn't apply to all frameworks, but there are a number of frameworks that we've worked on where there was a real focus in the client body with their group of architects to make sure that any learning from any project goes back into all of the other projects and therefore all of the other teams. And in a way that architects being slightly protective of their own ability to work in a particular way, you might not have been all that keen to share that in a more competitive scenario. Being obliged to do so under a framework does bring benefits to everybody and it doesn't improve all of those people who are on the framework at least. But how do you do that feedback? Uh, so a lot of that's done through, um, tends to be done through workshop actually, so a lot of it's done through, um, there are certain KPIs, I'm not a great fan of KPIs, so it's going to be a bit bald, they don't necessarily give you all the information to the sides of the particular thing you're measuring. But once you've identified that either things have gone really well or really badly on a particular project, um, making sure that that's fed back into the group and then discussed about how things might have been done differently to make sure it doesn't happen again, right. that's also the positive. And also it just improves the relationships across uh, businesses within the profession. The real benefit to it is the idea that you're learning something from people who, who have either made a, a, a brilliant solution or, or made an error that you may not have made because of the way you work but may have fallen into for different reasons. Mm. And I think mm. that's where mm. the real benefit comes. Very good. Okay. Um, and then there's this item called uh, commitment to people. It also then says with committed leadership. So again, yeah. um, whether that's a contradiction in terms, I don't know. This is the key in some ways of, of the, the collaborative conversation. Isn't yes. it? There's the structural working relationship and Absolutely. then there's the stakeholder commitment collaboration. So how do you see this? Thing? The thing about this, and this, this is where, kind of, particularly when you look back at it with hindsight, the Egan and Latham always feel so disappointing because they seem to be stating the leading obvious for in so many ways because what this is really saying is you've kind of got to do the right thing by the people who you're working with yeah. <laughs> you really shouldn't have to have a stick over your head to kind of do that but um, it probably is true that it was necessary one of the other things that's on the list but we haven't really talked about is this idea about safe working I mean I think mm. when you're as an architect and you sit in an office and you go to sites and you can see what happens on sites but if you sit in an office and you're designing something it is pretty hard to put yourself in the mindset of somebody with a jackhammer or a hammer and chisel or whatever it is yeah. and what they might be asked to do to, yeah. to deliver the thing you said yeah uh, and I think that was it was a bit of a, a watershed moment in in the CDM side of things where the, the importance of everybody's responsibility to individuals yeah. on a site is important yeah. Yeah. and I think that kind of people think that because that's everybody then so you say that's down to the person sweeping up after the work's been done on site as much as the people who are sitting in the office you know kind of yeah. um, uh, developing the, the designs it's kind of 25 years ago, 15 years ago, yeah. it's, a, it's a long time ago in, in, in practices. I remember seeing some of the Channel Tunnel work, oh, and yeah. even the Olympics, where the architects on both those projects were basically proudly stating that these were zero death yeah. places of work. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a kind of a pretty low bar, hopefully, but, yeah, exactly. but, it, but in those days it was you know, pretty, pretty harsh. Absolutely. So there's yeah. two things. One is, one is that, obviously, it went mad at the end of the last century, 1990s, where health and safety went to bureaucratically crazy and therefore it just it stultified things right. it actually didn't save anybody's lives on site it just made sure that nobody was sued but then you go to somewhere like China where you think actually health and safety is quite important but there's a kind of happy medium yeah. uh, which I think is really in essence what we're kind of talking about and, and I think that's the nub of the point because it, it's 
and, and this is, I know this is kind of the, 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 the issue behind all of these questions, like is this something that you can write down and form a set of processes and then it will magically happen? Or is it about setting up those processes so everybody thinks about it and then changes the way they do stuff so that they actually get a better outcome or they get more safe working environment or at least get better quality out of what they're doing? And yeah. I think that that's the, the interesting draw. And I, I think you're right, you know, 25 years later, it's probably more loosely applied in the way that it's actually applied, yeah. but it's probably better applied yeah, overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because part of the problem is we live in litigious times and uh, and risk averse times. You know, yeah, many, 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 many office management systems are all about risk aversion. Yeah. I do remember in my part three, the other thing that sticks with me in my part three was. Um, uh, I can't remember who it was now, but somebody who came in to give us talks around the legal side of things. I remember being told that you have to, and this, this dates it as well, you have to re, you have to think about every piece of paper you write, so that dates it for a start, yeah. being held up in a court of law by your thumb and your forefinger, yeah. um, and that's how you imagine everything you write, because that's the possibility that something you write may end up in that situation. Yeah. I've been very... I'm not sure I've been very lucky. I've never been in that situation. I've been, <laughs> I've been very effective. Um, I've never been in that situation. Consummate professional. <laughs> but, um, I, but I think that, that, that is, I think we've always been that litigious, I think, particularly in, in building. Yeah. Um, but I do think what has changed is where the buck stops, where the responsibility stops. And we have seen some horrible cases where um, you know, corporate manslaughter, we've also got Grenfell Tower um, investigations still going on. And you know that whatever comes out of that, the, there's, there are individuals who are responsible for their activities and their actions as an individual and they are at risk if they perhaps don't apply those rules rigidly. Mm-hmm. But also it's the, uh, the senior people in, in an organisation, in a business, uh, and ultimately chief exec. And that is interesting because you could just go letter of the law, but context is always different. I think you can probably be criticised for literally doing exactly the thing it says, even when it was the most inappropriate thing to do is no better than thinking carefully about what you should be doing. But I think the context and the, um, the atmosphere in an office has changed, and I'm sure the same is true on site in contracting terms, that because the buck stops at the top and that person could literally be put in prison, they're much more careful about making sure that everybody below them does understand their responsibilities and where there is leeway and the process which you perhaps ought to go through if you're thinking about moving away from it. Yeah, I know, but, but it, it, it kind of reinforces my original point, which is that I think that because now everybody can be sued, hmm. everyone is even more risk averse. Well, we can we can it's argue discuss. It's, it's, it's interesting that one. Yeah, I mean, because the Health and Safety Work Act '74 mm. has always had a clause which kind of um, brings the liability down on the person who's caused or deemed to have caused corporately yes. uh, a, a problem. Uh, but it's never really been exercised until the no. like '80s and '90s. Yes. Um, so That's true, yeah. anyway. We'll yeah, chat on. We'll chat on another one. <laughs> Listeners can discuss this at their leisure. But it, but it does move on to this uh, next point, really. Which uh, m- maybe we've talked about it. But there was the British standard, or still is the British standard, BS eleven hundred, which was called collaborative business relationship, which actually was a springboard in many ways to BIM conversations and that whole idea about how we work collaboratively through a tool. Um, and only now, two years ago, we have um, BS ISO four four zero zero one which is now called Collaborative Business Relationship Management System. So we had started off with Collaborative Business Relationships as a British standard, and now we have Collaborative Business Relationships Management Systems, uh, which kind of s- speaks volumes about how technical this is becoming. But, uh, but again, A, do you pay much attention to British standards on this because it's a formalised collaborative framework written down as to how you should behave, or do you think this is a much more organic 
process. Well, as I admitted to you before we started recording, um, the first time I'd heard mention of BS 11,000 11, and uh, the ISO that follows it was when I saw it on your <laughs> notes and we started talking about it a little bit earlier. So, um, and, and I have checked with a few colleagues and that, that's shared. Um, so I think that, that that also potentially describes how effective it is, but the first kind of element of the British standard, the new one that's just coming out, still describes you know the decision-making process to decide whether or not you should be collaborative and whether it's an appropriate project to to be collaborative on and I think that that that's an unusual situation for an architect to find themselves in for all the reasons mm, that we yeah. talked about earlier yeah. I mean you mentioned BIM as well I think it's interesting uh, and I think this, this goes to the nub of the, the, of the issue isn't it there are always tools to try to help collaboration things don't collaborate people collaborate and ultimately, we're still always talking about attitudes and behaviours and how people interact with each other to do the right thing. So all the tools are great. And actually, I think BIM is good, personally, because I think um, used properly, you can use it to be the single point of truth for a project if you put all the information in it. Mm-hmm. You know, all the health and safety stuff, all the risk, all the, all the, um, uh, the residual stuff, um, all, the, all the O&M stuff we know about, and data and assets, all those sort of things you can put into a BIM model and change as it develops, having one place to have it is a really good thing because so many errors happened in, in architecture particularly when you had information in more than one place and one bit wouldn't agree with another. Yeah. A contractor would use that as a way of you know, getting more time or money for what they were doing, then the whole adversarial thing starts. So actually having one, one thing in one place and not repeated is a brilliant thing and BIM has enabled that. No, exactly. So, you know, it's the, the fact that in the past you've been in all different positions, yeah. but now you have a tool which can spot a clash. The fact that then you send and say, whose fault is it? Who's going to pay for it? Who's going to pay for it? Who owns it? You know, it's, it's still I, there. I, 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 don't, I don't find the BIM thing, actually. I don't think the clash detection thing is the most useful thing, actually. It's actually putting the other information in, the stuff you don't draw. That's the really important information. And that does mean you can sit around the table with the engineers and everybody else. And before you have to worry too much about whose fault it was, you can resolve it first. I, I, yeah. I, I do think BIM is, is, is no, a that's, real that's step true. forward. That's true. That's true. But um, it doesn't stop the round table thing needing to happen. But, but it's useful. I mean, this, this conversation about collaboration and basically how to get a job off the ground and how to finish a job and without any rows and arguments, mm-hmm. um, which is the ideal or the perfect world. Here you are giving advice to these part three students you, you, you bring up, right? Not our generation, my generation. Um, but, you know, youngsters who are going to walk onto a construction site for the first time, they're going to take a telephone call from a client for the first time. What, what do you advise them to do? I, I think the, the, the key thing for people coming into the profession for the first time as a professional as opposed to people in working offices before they take that responsibility, listening is a massively underrated attribute in almost all professions, but in architecture particularly and interpreting what you've heard. I seem to spend, I remember a a period of time when I was working on some projects, and I seem to spend my whole time in those meetings interpreting between two people who were basically saying the same thing, but in such different ways that they thought they were arguing with each other. And the number of times you've sat through 20 minutes of these people talking like this and tearing your hair out, and so you say at the end of it, well, I think you said this, and I think you've said this. And if I've understood that right, you're basically saying the same thing. But for some reason, you're disagreeing about it. Because if you jump to the wrong conclusion too quickly because you think you know what you heard and have not really listened to it properly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a lot of problems can start very easily through that. No, I agree. Ironically, the, the whole idea of an architect being intelligible to the common man 
is uh, the flip side to what you just explained. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's an interesting dilemma we have here. Well, sometimes you can also, perhaps, perhaps plain language is the second, yeah. <laughs> second on the list. Yeah, well, that's the NEC versus JCT in some ways, isn't it? So, yeah. Very good, very good. Yeah, in terms of, very quickly, in terms mm. of procurement routes, yeah. we, we've seen this kind of shift in some ways from the grandiose narratives of the 90s and 80s where architects were leading or QSs were leading to now we have DMB almost yep. everywhere. So do you think that the, you know, building the team um, as uh, as um, Latham was arguing, is that changed? Has it changed? Without a doubt, I think it has. I mean, I think it's it's interesting because there's several things about there, isn't there? The, the, the first thing, it's a great title, building the team, because it actually, yeah. even if you don't read anything else in the report, yeah, yeah. the focus on the importance of doing that is yeah. is good. And that, and that that's to me that does seem to have changed. I know that I was talking about the uh, selection interviews for architects earlier. That important aspect of can I work with these people? I worked with Stephen Buck. Um, who was a great guy to work with, a really good guy to work with early in, in my career. And um, we had this client come in, um, and he had a project. He had quite a big project for us uh, as a small practice. And this guy, they got talking, and I, I stayed, Stephen said to me, why don't you stay, just sit in the corner and make a better model or do some drawing or whatever, and just listen to the conversation, because you'll find it interesting. I don't think he realised how interesting it was going to be. So this guy came up the stairs and came into our office, uh, and he started telling Stephen about the project, which was really interesting. And then he got talking about ways of working, and then he got, it's the guy got quite heated. And I can't remember how this conversation started, but, but essentially it ended with the potential client saying, is my money not good enough for you? And I kind of thought, well, how did we get to here from there's a potential project? And Stephen had essentially, during the course of this conversation, determined that working with this person, whilst the project might be really, really interesting, it was going to be so awful as a, as a client-architect relationship that he wasn't prepared to do it. But didn't have any work. But he decided that was that was the right outcome to this particular conversation. Yeah, yeah. That's a really hard thing to do, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that that relationship so important. So I think that that and building the team it applies to everything. It applies no, to everybody you select as part of that. I mean, I can't think of a project I've done recently where we haven't had three or four procurement workshops to try and work out what procurement method we, as a consultant team, would recommend yeah, to our client yeah. for a particular project. And not a single one is ever right. It's just the least worst in that particular situation. So that's, that's not a good outcome, I don't think. A Latham report we call building the team, but which particular team? <laughs> uh, because of the work that I do, and particularly when I was doing schools and school design, it, we went from in the early academy process being selected by the sponsor and then building a team with them around us to towards the end of the academy processes before it got cancelled entirely, be selected by a contractor to work amongst three teams of contractor and architect to go and engage with a client group, and they had to, I always felt really sorry for the client group, so they had to engage with three separate teams of architects and contractors, then get down to two, then go through the whole thing again to get to a sort of end of stage, or it used to be stage C, so stage two, mm. select the team they wanted to work with. An awful process in many ways, but actually it completely flipped on its head, the relationship, and our experience that was really good on the whole, because right. contractor and architect, all they really wanted to do was, at those early stages, win the project, mm. and so the relationships were generally pretty good. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a daft question, but is there one thing that you've learned to actually kind yeah. of ex- almost express? Yeah, I have It was interesting. I was, I was relating this um, interview situation I had with you uh, where we were asked about uh, where we had a claim and what we did to resolve the claim. Now, that in itself is, is interesting, but not the point. The point was the phrase I used uh, when I was describing why we had done what we'd done, which is essentially, probably shouldn't say this, essentially to take the matter out of the hands of our insurers by saying we will resolve it ourselves because the excess that we'd have to pay was actually going to be more than the cost of resolving the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so the decision was, well, the right thing to do to 
resolve it ourselves, yeah. project first. And I think that is probably the one thing. If I was going to have two words above everybody's desks, project first, because it's not about the architect or the contractor or the engineer or the client or the public to some extent. Everything revolves around what you're trying to achieve, which is the project. Very good. We'll call it a day on that one, I think. So thanks very much to Keith Papper, PDP. Take a look on their website. Good that a large practice like this retains its connection with people, still collaborates, still has public engagement at the forefront. Project first, remember that one, you heard it here first. But that's all we have time for now, I'm afraid. Please take a look at the website or search Professional Practice Podcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes to listen to other experts on a wide range of topics. And you can also email me on austin.williams at kingston.ac.uk if you want to find out more about the part three, which I've already had uh, fantastic ratings here by Keith. So until next time, all the very best. Bye-bye.